Welcome to the inaugural Planning Exchange podcast. A huge shout out to all of our followers so far and all of those who have assisted in getting us to this point. For those of you who found us through iTunes, we encourage you to drop by our website, www.planningexchange.org, to check out our other resources and a schedule of upcoming podcasts. The Planning Exchange will be releasing podcasts generally on a monthly basis on a range of urban subjects. We want our information to be relevant to both our local and international listeners and hope to serve as a knowledge portal around the world for other urban professionals, including urban planners, architects, urban designers, landscape architects, economists, academics and students, just to name a few. Our very first cab off the rank is the brilliant Chris Avery from Deep End Consulting in Melbourne. Congratulations on being our inaugural subject, Chris, and welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Jess. Uh, Chris, can you just uh, give our listeners a, a brief bio on how you got to where you are? Sure, Peter. Um, well, I, uh, I graduated with a Bachelor of Town Regional Planning from the University of Melbourne um, some years ago now, um, and uh, I found my way into a small property consulting uh, firm called uh, Ratio Consultants here in Melbourne, and um, during that time I also completed a, uh, a graduate diploma of social statistics. And from those two backgrounds, I developed an interest in uh, urban economics, in retailing, uh, in spatial analysis and, and mapping, and, and developing a, um, an interest in where retailers locate and why they locate and what makes them successful. And I guess after that, I, uh, I moved on and, and spent many years at Coles Meyer Limited um, at the time, Australia's largest retailers who operate across, at the time, department stores, discount stores, supermarkets, and at, at there I, um, I worked as their network planning manager and uh, location analyst for, for a number of years before moving back into consulting. Well, thanks for that background, Chris. Uh, our first question, clicks v bricks, who is winning, where is it going? Uh, what influence is the internet having on the viability of uh, retail spaces? Well, here in Australia, Peter, um, online retailing retail sales, which have only recently um, been measured by our uh, Australian Bureau of Statistics, um, as they recognise it as a, a major element of our industry now, um, as of about August this year, the, the total value of the of the online retailing in Australia was getting close to sixteen billion dollars, and that represents about six point six percent. Well, certainly moving towards 7% of total retail sales in this country. Um, 2009 to 10, it was around um, 4%. So it's increased, but it's still at a fairly you know, low base, if you like. So as a part of the industry, it's not as, as significant as some people might like to think. Um, the growth rates were very high in the early years uh, when online retailing really started taking off. Um, interestingly, our Bureau has measured growth in the last 12 months at only 8.3%. So while it's growing at a faster rate than our conventional retail industry, um, our bricks and mortar industry, if you like, the growth rate is slowing or appears to be slowing. I think in the early years, you know, the highest growth categories were in... Um, in games, electronics, books, you know, the Amazon-type products that everyone were, f were familiar with. And I think they did ha certainly have an impact on our, on our traditional retailers in those categories. Um, in more recent years, food, liquor, 
fashion and media have come on, but those, those, those growth rates today are actually um, relatively slow. And what are the uh, disruptive technologies in the retail sector? Well, some might argue that online retailing is a, is a disruptive technology, but in my mind it's, it's really just another channel that retailers are employing. And, and the better retailer, retailers are having what they call an omni-channel um, strategy where they combine both online retailing with their, their bricks and mortar stores. And, and quite often, you know, those two are you know, hard to discern apart and, 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 and good retailers are employing both as their, as their strategy to get to consumers. So I don't, I don't believe that there are any technologies that are really disrupting the retail sector as such. And Chris, so what happens when shopping centres fail? There's been a lot of discussion recently about high, high streets uh, strips and the bigger shopping centres failing because mm-hmm. of technology or mm-hmm. other items that people have come up with. Well, Jess, thankfully in Australia, we don't have a lot of evidence of failed shopping centres. Um, but certainly there are some that are going through you know, challenging times and, and I think are probably going through a transitional phase. Um, here in Melbourne, most of our strip shopping centres, and, and Melbourne is known as, as you know one of the, the shopping capitals, is the shopping capital of Australia, and and being a, a Victorian era city, um, a lot of our retailing was built in long uh, traditional shopping centres um, through to the, through to the mid nineteen fifties. Um, so it is a it is a traditional and important part of of shopping in Melbourne, um, but here. We don't have the blighted areas and run-down parts of our city, in particular our retail commercial areas, that you can and do find overseas. Um, and there are a number of reasons for that, but, uh, but generally I think um, the issues that, or the, the factors that support you know, strong strip retailing in, in Melbourne and Australia generally is that we have strong population growth, faster rates than in, um, in Europe and the United States. Um, we've had a very strong economy um, certainly in the last 10 years and certainly post-GFC, but uh, generally our rates of growth have been very high on an OECD basis. Um, we have a you know, broad range of multicultural groups. You know, there was a high proportion of the Australian population that were born overseas, approaching 30% now. And so in, in large areas of Melbourne and Sydney and the major cities, um, these cultural gr- groups that often live together you know, establish businesses and, and, you know, and take over these strip centres and they become very important cultural hubs across the city. So there are some areas and centres that are in transition, but you find that other groups take over them. Cafes and restaurants might replace fashion shops. And I think this is the, the great part of our strip centres that you don't see in the standalone shopping centres is that they change and evolve as, as the population changes and the economy changes. So do you think this concept of high street shopping strips is declining overall? Um, I, don't, I don't think it's declining. No, I think it's evolving. I think it's changing. Um, you know, the, the, occupancy, uh, the occupancy levels measured in, in terms of vacant shops across Melbourne is still very low. Um, some, some agents in Melbourne, Knight Frank, recently undertook a survey of our, of our sort of 10 or 12 largest strip centres and they found that the, the highest uh, vacancy rates were sort of sitting around 6 to 8% in some of our centres, but some of the, the better ones are sitting at 2 3%, and, and that's, a, that's in fact a desirable vacancy rate by you know, commercial standards. So um, traditionally there have been food and fashion, 
um, but I think a lot of them now are evolving to um, cafes, restaurants. Now, personal service is a, is a huge growth industry um, in, in Australia and, and in Western economies now, and I think that uh, the, the health, uh, health and uh, well-being, and gymnasiums and and small consulting groups that sit up in strip centres, they're finding these locations as very attractive little business hubs now. And so a lot of our strip centres are, uh, are moving and evolving from their sort of traditional origins. And <clears throat> some of the factors which explain the increase in Melbourne's vacancy rate? Well, I think that um, th- there, isn't a, there isn't a single... I don't think there's a single factor, Peter, but certainly um, some commentators are pointing to um, you know, the major redevelopments that have happened in the, in the CBD um, in, the last, uh, in the last couple of years, the Melbourne Emporium, which was a major uh, redevelopment uh, in Melbourne's um, city grid, which opened um, early this year, has attracted a large number of fashion and international retailers, and, and that's possibly caused some, some stress on some of the local inner-city strips. Um, we've had you know, uh, um, a huge interest from international retailers in Australia, and, and because of our, our strong economic growth and, and population growth com- compared to other Western economies. And so we've seen the arrival of Uniqlo, H&M, Topshop and Zara, you know, these fast fashion retailers, and they're now establishing in our big regional shopping centres and moving into our central business districts. And they have certainly had some impact on our traditional strips. Chris, I want to challenge you to um, jump back 20 years and what were the major retailing trends then and how have we evolved? I think if, if you look back 20 years, I think the, the big changes that really happened um, through Melbourne and, and Australia generally was extended trading hours. And I think here in Victoria, we were the first to, to liberalise our trading hours. And there was a time, and most people here probably won't remember it, um, where you couldn't buy anything after five o'clock in the afternoon. And um, uh, Victoria was the first to, um, uh, to change and it was the you know, supermarkets in particular that picked up on extended trading hours. And I think that was one of the things that really changed the way people uh, shopped and behaved and it was a response to our changing lifestyles, dual-income families, um, and uh, I think a lot of the pressures that came on families and, and, and it's been um, you know, well rewarded for those retailers that embraced it early. And those extended hours, have they helped other, other parts of the retail sector? Oh, look, I think it's fair to say, Peter, that there were parts of the industry that, that really suffered under extended trading hours as well and, and there were the small mixed businesses and convenience stores that probably did have did operate under extended hours but when the then the large, when the large supermarkets uh, changed and uh, moved to open you know to 9 10 even midnight then those businesses certainly suffered Chris uh, with uh, the changes in the last 10 to 20 years what other changes were there apart from uh, extended hours well Peter, I think what we saw during the 80s 90s and early 2000s was the massive, massive expansion of our you know, standalone internalised suburban shopping centres, um, and they went through an enormous growth phase, which was um, really driven by large format retailers, uh, discount department stores like Kmart and Target and Big W that were on you know, very rapid you know, uh, sort of growth strategies, and so they underpinned 
the expansion of you know most of our seventy big shopping centres throughout the country. So I think that was a you know that was a major you know, shift in our industry. Um, and more recently, we've also seen a huge explosion in our showrooms and, and what we call our bulky goods or what the industry now calls themselves large format retailers. So electrical, appliance, furniture retailers, um, office supplies. And these are trends that you do that we were seeing overseas. And, and here in Australia, it was the small local shops and businesses that started to become bigger and bigger, better organised, more consolidated. And they moved out of the traditional centres and strips and they were increasingly accommodated in these large format drive-up sort of open plan centres in the suburbs. And they became known as you know, the category killers, the, the Toys R Us that came here from the States and, and office works that were um, developed here that were sort of typical of those formats. Um, and I think in the last 10 years, what we've seen is, um, I mentioned that the arrival of international retailers, the, the big uh, fast fashion retailers, and, and I think globalisation is, is now what we've seen and Australia is now attracting very strong interest from European specialty shops and, and small retailers who are looking to grow outside their you know, traditional low growth economies in, in Europe and America. So I think we've seen you know, a big influx in new specialist retailers. Um, we've obviously seen a lot of technological advancements. Um, here we, our, our food and our supermarket industry has gone through a lot of change over the last 10, 20 years. Um, we've seen the, the consolidation of our two biggest groups, Coles and Woolworths, um, who operate and, and attract probably about 80% of sales in, in their category. Um, and we've seen the demise of our independent supermarket sector and, and some of our traditional discounters. But I think the positive thing in the last 10 years has been uh, the arrival of Aldi, uh, certainly from Europe, who now have over 350 stores on our, on our east coast and are growing elsewhere. And they've, they've, they've really taken up the slack or the, uh, the void that was in our discount supermarket sector. Um, and then more recently, again, We've seen the arrival of Costco, and they now have uh, five to six stores on our east coast, and and these two operators have really, I think, changed our supermarket industry um, and brought a lot more competition and interest to it. So these are some of the trends that have happened in the last ten to twenty years. Are they likely to persist in the future? Um, yes, they will. Um, and but I think again, uh, I think our the, the techn technological changes that we've sort of briefly touched on um, will be the big will be the big sort of mover over the next over the next ten years, and I think that's um, what we will say see is a, is a big differences in our in-store experiences in the way that retailers are um, engaging with their with their customers, um, whether that's by smartphones and social social media. Um, uh, connecting with customers and advising them of specials and promotions. And even even now Apple are developing technology that allows retailers to even engage with you as you, as you are walking around their store and notifying you of a certain promotion or sale and, and bringing you to a certain part of the store. Um, so I think it's uh, technology will be the big mover. And, and I think it will be interesting to see how our our large format retailers such as our supermarkets and our department stores engage because as we see them today, they haven't really changed very much over the years. Um, so uh, it'll be interesting to see how they 
how they develop new technologies for the for the consumer. And uh, <clears throat> looking at Australian retailing, uh, retailing changes here occurring in unison with changes overseas, or is there a bit of a lag, or are we different? Look, I think generally we lag. We've lagged overseas markets in the past. And I think it's because Australia is a relatively small, isolated market, 20, 24, 25 million people. So we are small by international standards. We're also isolated and we also have a population that's dispersed over a very wide area. So for retailers to come to Australia, um, you've, got these, you know, you've, got a, you've got the tyranny of distance, you've got large separation between our you know, major markets in the, in the country and... You know, Australia is a fairly, um, it's, it, it is a high, it is a high cost market. You know, our, our wages and salaries and our rents, and the cost of doing business here is relatively high compared to uh, overseas markets. So, I think it's a reason why we've probably lagged um, the rest of the world in the in the introduction of new retail retailers and retail concepts. But I think um, the, the the improving um, well, the globalisation of retailing generally and the way and the greater efficiencies in moving goods and services has, has certainly um, improved the prospects of these retailers coming out here. And uh, what can we learn from overseas? You know, where are the best places to look for the new trends and things? Well, I think a, a, lot, of the, a, lot, a lot of the ideas are coming out of, um, coming out of Europe, coming out of, the, um, out of the United States, particularly the West Coast. Um, and that includes retailers, it includes new town centre uh, design, um, and, and, and Canada as well is a, you know, a regular place that people are visiting to see um, new designs around mixed-use retailing and, and leisure retailing. And I think it's this, it's this blend of what we're seeing is it's this blend of entertainment, leisure, um, and socialising that, that major shopping centres are trying to bring in and, and, and broaden their offer and, and these major... Owners and retailers are regularly travelling to the states to see the latest concepts. In terms of technology, what are retailers' requirements and consumer needs? How have these changed, and what spatial implications does this have? Well, I think there's been been a few things here. Firstly, I think techni- technology is, is effectively reducing the display area and the amount of stock that retailers um, need to carry compared to past years and. And it's been, a, I think it's been happening for a while where, you know, consumers will go into a store and they'll see a product um, and that product, if they elect to buy it, um, will be just shipped to their home from the distribution or warehouse. It won't be um, stocked in, in multiple numbers through the, throughout the store. And so I think uh, what we're seeing now is that um, it's really, it's, 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 it's look, it's buy, it's, it's try on, it's, it's reviewing the display and then the, and then the, the delivery really takes takes place elsewhere, so I think it's um, what that means. Of course, is that retailers can be become more efficient. They don't need the back of house and storage areas that they have in the past. Um, deliveries are really made outside the store, and it allows them to be more efficient and and actually concentrate on on in, on better and, and more efficient displays as well. So, Chris, moving away from the online um, discussion. Are there any particular land use threats to establish retail centres? Well, look, I, I don't, I don't think there are too many that I can, I can think of, Jess. Um, I, we know that in our established centres and our strips, it, it's always and often traffic congestion and the lack of parking, 
that you know retailers cite as their as their major challenges. Not so much a land use threat, but I guess it's a um, it's it's a function of our increasingly busy cities and and here in Australia very high levels of car ownership and relatively low levels of public transport use. And so I think these things are, are the real challenges. And to overcome this, you know, our traffic authorities have introduced clearways, so no parking zones. Um, they've tried to improve the speed at which our road-based public transport, trams and buses, can flow through our shopping centres, which has meant you know, they've had to reduce parking or, or streamline, um, streamline the roads. And that has an effect on our, on our small retailers and businesses that... You know, generally tend to survive on people driving up and parking. And at the end of the day, you know, Australian cities are very low, low-density cities. We, we have fairly low um, population levels per square kilometre compared to European cities. And so, um, you know, culturally Australians jump in their car to drive to their local shopping centre. And, um, you know, that's, that's something that's probably going to change over time, but, but gradually... Chris, what about mixed-use developments? Are they an aid to retail centres? Well, Peter, I think what you mean by mixed-use developments is um, multi-level buildings with, you know, retail on the ground floor and either perhaps offices or residential above. And um, generally I'm I'm very much in favour of them and I think um, these are are creating opportunities for retailers and they are increasing the density um, the population density around our activity centres, which, which for the reasons I just mentioned, uh, are positive. Uh, they bring they bring a daytime workforce in terms of office employees to an area during the day, and on after hours and weekends when the residents return, you know there's a ready market for the for the retailers at, at the base of these centres. Um, they improve so they, they increase activity levels after hours during the day. They add diversity and interest to our centres. Um, and generally they should be encouraged. And how adaptable are retail areas to change and uh, what can designers and planners do to assist? I think, our, I think our retail areas are adaptable to change. You know, we see it in a lot of our strip centres which have evolved over many years through um, from traditionally food and fashion to cafes, restaurants to services. Some have developed a factory outlet orientation and some of those centres come and go and are replaced again by cafes over time. So I think our our centres are quite adaptable Um, and we don't have an oversupply of retail floor space in this country. Um, On a floor space per capita level, we're about half of what the US is. So we have... um, Our our planning regime has tended to, you know, restrict floor space rather than develop it on an ad hoc and on a developer needs basis, if you like. So... We have a supply that's been reasonably tight, and I think that's certainly improved the viability of our centres. Um, and, the, and the challenges that they have, I think they've moved through fairly well over time. As far as what planners can do, um, I think it, it, it comes down to, to um, managing these centres in the same way as a, a Westfield would manage its own regional shopping centre. And that's looking at it as an asset um, for the community. Uh, it's where businesses make a living. It's where employment takes place. Um, it's not something that will naturally just look after itself and some of them do need some help. And whether that's by uh, traffic management, providing more car parking, providing better signage and identification. Um, if you go into the major shopping centres now, 
you'll see signage that says there's 100 car parking spaces vacant on this deck. You know, that's a, that's a terif- terrific information tool for a customer. Why couldn't something like that happen in, in, in the large shopping streets? We do see signs with numbers of spaces, but perhaps there's a, a better information system that can communicate to consumers as they move through these centres. And do you think that responsibility should be left up to the council or should that be something that's managed by a local traders association? Well, I think um, these things ultimately should be put in the hands of the retailers and the retailers need to, while they're busy people, they need to have groups that represent their interests. And we've seen over many years in Victoria and elsewhere in Australia, you know, the um, main street groups who are often um, appointed coordinator or a marketing manager and that's uh, appointed by the council often or, or put in place by the council and that's funded out of special rates or the um, or levies that are put on the on the retailers. And so I think these are important things that um, in the same way that major shopping centres have their marketing managers, these, these bigger strip centres now are becoming better coordinated. And, and they need to do that to compete. And so around Easter and Christmas, they've got promotions and, and events and displays and lighting. Um, and, and maybe it's mail-outs or letter drops or, or even now social networking. Mm. So these are the things that can be done by local councils or help facilitate um, improvements in our local centres. So, Chris, we've also seen a lot of innovative uh, retail uses and concepts coming out of the US and Europe. Uh, do you think our planning policies help or hinder these innovations? Look, Jess, I think historically our planning policies have hindered um, you know, the, the development of our centres and, and innovation and particularly competition. Um, and we have a, you know, Australia is based on a British town planning model of, of zoning and, and, and land use land use controls. Um, you know, traditionally we've been, uh, our town planners have been, um, I think, a little flix, fixated with hierarchies of centres, introducing floor space caps, which limit the amount of floor space that can be developed in certain areas, um, and inflexible zoning and land use uh, controls and provisions. Um, we've also had, probably in this state particularly, you know, a fairly easy appeal mechanisms for commercial objectors to take an application uh, through appeal uh, avenues which can, you know, sometimes ultimately stop that development or certainly make it more costly or prohibitive to some, for someone to, to take up an innovative proposal. Um, and I think the emphasis has really been in planning here about protection uh, rather than growth and competition. I think in more recent years that's changed and there's been a number of major reports um, which have been initiated by our, our, our Competition Commission um, and, our, and our Productivity Commission, Federal Government Productivity Commission, and they found they both found that um, you know, planning was creating you know, significant barriers to... Um, to, to the entry to, to competitors, particularly in our food and grocery industry, um, but generally um, business development and, and, and construction was being hampered by our by our inflexible zoning system. And I think we've seen uh, here in Victoria we've seen changes in our in our business zones in the last uh, couple of years, which has. Um, created more flexibility for some retailers to locate in certain zones, which I think is a terrific thing. Um, and generally we are seeing now a greater emphasis, I think, in, in policy that's to do with competition and innovation 
um, and encouraging new concepts that do come come to Australia. And I think Aldi and Costco, for example, have, have been given some support, perhaps not as much as they would like, but certainly some sort support to establish here in this country. Just um, getting over the, <clears throat> the issue of planning policy, how much do you think planners and designers actually know about retailing? Well, I think it, Peter, it's not it's not part of their it's not part of their uh, traditional the traditional curriculum. Um, you know, retailing certainly when I did town planning didn't um, didn't it was it was dealt with in a very uh, philosophical and theoretical way. Um, but retailing is really about small businesses, you know, making making money and employing people, and they have certain you know, critical elements to their to their to their um, business profile and their, and their um, and their business mix that you know makes them viable. And I think often um, planners um, lose sight of the fact that these are you know the whole group of all of these small businesses are really what makes this centre. It just doesn't happen. It doesn't exist um, just because people will go there and shop there. Um, they've got many multiple decisions that they make every day that they need to to be viable. So um, I think planners. Um, um, can miss, miss miss the point about what retailing is really all about. Often. And what about the retailers? Do you think they know a lot about uh, the consumer wants and needs, or do they need to be more educated? Um, I think that they. I think it's changed enormously over the last twenty years, and and certainly our large retailers have very very sophisticated. Um, databases and information systems which allow allow them to track um, uh, consumers what they're buying where they're buying you know we have loyalty all the large retailers have loyalty programs that enable them to identify you know your purchases really back to your your place of address and that allows them to engage you in one-on-one marketing um, so that so and there are other products and and databases out there colloquially known as big data that uh, people are putting together and, and selling back to retailers, which um, you know, have some confidential information aspects to them, um, perhaps some that would really shock some people, but um, there's a lot of information out there that retailers can tap into that where they have the resources. At a, at a smaller smaller business level, uh, retailer level, I think it's it's social networking, it's, it's the apps and the engagement that people are developing, which allows small retailers to inform their um, perhaps even a, a very small consumer base or a customer base, but it allows them to uh, it allows them to notify them of, of new products and services or promotions. But I think what's going to happen in the future is that the, the, these apps um, will allow you know the consumer really to dictate to the retailer you know what they should be selling and what they want and what they need. And so I think it's going to turn around in the future. And I think that um, there are now tools and, and technology in place which allow. You know, retailers to really get that two-way information going back to their consumer. And with um, with customers, how far will they travel to shop? Well, that's a big, big question, Peter. Um, look, I think traditionally, if we you think about the things that we buy most frequently, our, our, our weekly food and groceries or daily food and groceries, I think in Melbourne, you know, we've got a fairly, and in most Western cities, there's a you know fairly regular network and pattern of, of, of supermarkets and food stores. In Melbourne, I would say that most people would travel sort of between up to two, two and a half kilometres um, probably to, to access, you know, major groceries and that, that really reflects the pattern of our, and, and network of our activity centres. So that would be sort of your, your common starting point. Um, but we've also got, 
you know, retailers, you know, destinational retailers, um, you know, the, the likes of Costco that are only just arriving here and, and um, or, or Ikea who have been here for some time. Now, these retailers have such pulling power that they have really almost sub-metropolitan catchments and, and people will drive very long distance for even though Costco is really to some extent selling the same things that you can find in your, in your local supermarket, but they're doing it with much greater buying power and, and variety and range and a, and a, and a unique, unique appeal as well. And on the, other, on the other side of the equation, how far will people walk to shop on a regular basis? Well, look, it's not something that I've, I've researched um, specifically, but I guess from my own, um, my own experience and, and observations, look, I would have thought, um, you know, it's, a, it's around that four to 500 metre mark, I think, which is the point at which most people would probably be prepared to, to walk from their home to their, to their local shops um, for, for basic goods and services. <clears throat> Again, I, I mentioned that, um, you know, we are very much, whether we like it or not, a, a car-based society here, and, um, um, you know, it is very easy for us to, to jump in our car and, and go down to the local shops. Um, in the inner areas, that's certainly not, not the case. Um, but I think it generally uh, there's a 500 metre threshold. And what can planners and designers do to improve the provision of retail services? Um, I think that I think that designers and planners um, can better understand understand the the location criteria um, and design criteria that I think is important in building new shopping centres in our other areas, but also understanding. Um, I think the the, the the catchment and the and the and the requirements of, of established retailers in, in existing centres. Um, now that's a that's perhaps a, you know, a slightly technical response, but um, in terms of new centres, you know we see a lot of the um, uh, we see a lot of the ideas that have come out of the states in, in new town centre design being implemented here, um, and. Uh, these include building main streets into our new shopping centres, um, activated street frontages where possible, and these are all these are all good things. And I think you know the industry is generally supportive of them. Um, and there are some big centres in Australia, recently developed them in the last ten years, that have employed some of these ideas. And the better ones tend to be hybrids, where you have built a main street and activated it, but you've also got some internal shopping areas um, hanging off those as well. But what we do see is that um, sometimes planners can take these concepts and uh, put them into structure plans in new areas and, and enforce them. Um, and in many cases, some of these plans are just uh, commercially uh, unrealistic, if you like. And you know, it does create a lot of tension between developers and retailers and planners who want to, um, you know, enforce. Um, some of the principles of Main Street design. So there's, you, a, there's a balance there that needs to be achieved. And so you, you're not a fan of new urbanism in design, is that it, Chris? Uh, I think it has its place, Peter, and uh, I think um, I think if 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 the new urbanists, to, to to call them that, can understand that there are some some limitations to their to that philosophy, um, and and understand that businesses, small businesses. Uh, still need access to car parking and, and passing traffic in many cases and and need to be located near major anchors such as supermarkets and things, then then I think there's a, there's a compromise. 
Thanks very much for that, Chris. What an interesting insight into the retail world. I think as urban professionals, these economic con concepts are so important to understand as they influence how our cities need to be planned. It's quite clear that perhaps economics is not always well understood by planners and urban designers, and that perhaps there are some misunderstandings around these issues. Thanks again for your involvement, Chris. Your information will be invaluable to our listeners. For those listeners tuning in today, remember to visit our website, www.planningexchange.org, and tune into our next podcast. Over and out.